You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Dalton. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you and see what He has for us. And so to start our time together, I I just have a question for you. By show of hands, how many of you have ever been on a road trip? And I'm not talking about the two-hour trip that it takes to get to your cabin. I mean like a real road trip. One that lasts more than 10 hours. Maybe has a few pit stops along the way. Alright, so there's a few of you. Well, similar to a road trip you may have experienced with friends or family as a church, whether you know this or not, we have been on a road trip, if you will, throughout the course of the spring. And if you remember back in March, specifically March 12th, we loaded up the car and began our road trip throughout the book of Ephesians. And if you allow me to just expand on this analogy just a little further, you could even say that our destination is clarity in the gospel. That's where we want to go. We want clarity in the gospel. We want to know it fully and clearly. You could say that the driver of the car is whoever is preaching each week. And this week you got me, and I've only got one speeding ticket in my life, so I think we should be just fine. And our tour guide, then, is none other than the Apostle Paul, which means we're in for quite the ride. And if you remember back to the beginning of our journey through the book of Ephesians, specifically in chapter 1, Paul begins by pointing out to us some pretty significant things for us to notice early on in the trip. So imagine with me, Paul, coming over the loudspeaker saying, All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you look out the window to your right, you'll notice two primary works of the Father, which you will see are predestination and adoption. And then if you just look down the road just a little further on your left, you'll see two primary works of the Son, which are redemption and forgiveness. And then straight ahead, in just a little bit, you will see two primary workings of the Holy Spirit, which are sealing you for God and guaranteeing your inheritance. And then from here, we begin driving through some rough parts of town as we come to chapter 2, which remind us of our past life apart from Christ, when we were spiritually dead, following the ways of this world, the flesh, and the devil, and were destined for wrath. But just when we thought this part of the drive couldn't get any worse, like the rising of the sun on the darkest of night, we read two of the greatest words that have ever been written, but God, as we are then reminded of the gospel that makes us alive in Christ. From here, we came to chapters 3 and 4 and drove through a few towns called Mystery Revealed, Spiritual Unity, and Justification. And then just outside the town of Justification, we came to the long, winding road of Sanctification, which is lined on both sides of the road with signposts reminding us to put things on and to take things off as it helps us to become more like Jesus on the journey. And then last week, we got to chapter 5, and we saw in verse 1 and 2 that Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And this is where we have decided to pull the car over and come to a stop. Because just like most road trips, oftentimes there are specific places along the way that are worth stopping the car for so that you can get out and explore it further. And guys, this is one of those places. See, so often we as Christians who know the Bible and believe the gospel can find ourselves just reading over New Testament verses like this. 
which talk about how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But the question I have for you is, have you ever considered why the words offering and sacrifice are used here? Or, or maybe even ask why Jesus even had to die in the first place? See, if we only ever read the New Testament books of the Bible, as opposed to the Old Testament books as well, then we will never fully understand the depth and the richness of the gospel as revealed from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Which is why it pains me to hear some pastors having the audacity to say we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. As if the Old Testament is irrelevant to us now that Jesus has come and we have the New Testament. And so I'll just say this as plainly as I can. That's dumb. That's a terrible idea. And yes, we love and accept the New Testament books of the Bible. But you need to know that we are Christians because of the Old Testament. And honestly, if it wasn't for the Old Testament, nothing in the New Testament would make sense to us. And so because of this fact, before we go any further in our Ephesians sermon series, we as a sermon prep team have decided to take a short break to instead study a book in the Old Testament. And in this book, we are going to see many of these same spiritual truths, ideas, and commands given to us by the Apostle Paul to the people of God in the church of Ephesus in the New Testament and how they were previously experienced by the people of God in the Old Testament and how they not only point to Jesus in general, but actually bring clarity to the necessity of his sacrifice on the behalf of a sinful people. So with that being said, River City Church, welcome to the book of Malachi, as this is where we are going to be camping out for the next three weeks before we jump back into our Ephesians sermon series. Now, the title of this short sermon series is this, Malachi, God's Answer to Our Wayward Hearts. And during this series, our goal is just that, to see how the covenant-keeping God responds to a sinful and wayward people. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament as we will be reading all of chapter 1 together. So Malachi chapter 1, here's what it says. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. 
I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us, your people. In your word, Lord, you tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so today, would you help us to take these words seriously, that we wouldn't overlook them or forget them, but instead that we would believe them. And so now as we open our Bibles, we ask for your help. Would you, by your spirit, open our eyes so that we may see and behold the wondrous things found in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you like to take notes or just like to see where we are headed this morning, the primary message of my sermon is this. God remains committed to his promises, even though his people remain corrupt. And so to show this, I have just three points for you. The first one is how we doubt God's love. Point two is how we despise God's name. And then point three is how God displays his commitment to us. So that's where we're going this morning. And what you'll notice about these three points is the fact that all three of them highlight a conversation or disputation between Israel and the Lord. But before we begin to unpack this text, uh, I just want to spend some time covering the background of Malachi so that we can better understand who the book was written to and why it was written in the first place. And so when it comes to real estate and the process of looking for a new home, the phrase you'll often hear is what? Location, location, location. The location of a house can positively or negatively impact its value. See, it's one thing to have a nice house, but if that house is located in a bad area or in a place that doesn't fit the size or the style of the house, then the overall value of that house is negatively affected. And similar to that, if you want to be a good Bible reader, who reads and understands each book of the Bible correctly, then you need to know that what my seminary professor continually drilled in my head is this, context is king. Therefore, the phrase I want you to think of is context, context, context. If you want to properly understand a book of the Bible, then you need to know the context, especially when it comes to the correct interpretation. The context of the book will trump every presupposed thought or idea you might have about a specific passage of scripture, as it is not only the king that rules over all interpretation, but it's also the key that unlocks the door to the depths of application for our lives. So to give some historical context of our passage today, according to most biblical scholars, Malachi most likely uh, lived and wrote during the same time as the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah around 460 B.C., which means that roughly 150 years before this book was even written, Israel had been taken into Babylonian captivity by a king named Nebuchadnezzar. 
Then after 70 years in exile, which was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah, a king in Persia named Cyrus came and defeated the Babylonians and was then used by God to tell the nation of Israel to go back to the land of Israel. However, the only problem was that the land that they were going back to had been destroyed when they were taken into captivity. And when I say destroy, I mean like the walls were busted, the temple was gone, and the city was left in ruins. And so as you see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back and they begin restoring the city of Jerusalem by building walls and constructing a new temple. And then as we see in Nehemiah chapter 8, once the walls are built and the temple is restored, you read about this entire day dedicated to praising God by reading the law and rejoicing with one another. In other words, you could say that the people of Israel were on fire for the Lord and were dedicated to keeping the commands of the law out of a glad heart. But now picking up in the book of Malachi, which came 80 years after this event, it appears that that fire that was once there has since burnt out. Their affections have waned and their hearts have gone wayward. All the while, not far from them, the Edomites, which are the descendants of Esau, moved in uh, close by to the territory just south of Moab. And to Israel's surprise, they weren't uh, just doing okay. They were prospering greatly. And as you can imagine, this bugged the Israelites. And so now this leads us to our first point, which is this, point one, how we doubt God's love. See, picking up in verse one, we read the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So right from the start, we see that this is God's message to the people of Israel, delivered to them by the prophet Malachi, whose name literally means my messenger. And so here is the message God wants to deliver to his people. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's his message. Now, I don't know how this phrase sounds to you when you initially hear it. But when I first read this, I couldn't help but read this as a past tense event, as if this was God reminding them of a time in the past when he used to love them, and now for some reason in the present, he doesn't. But this is where understanding the verb tense of a phrase in its original Greek language is so helpful in understanding what God is trying to say to them. See, the phrase, I have loved you, is what's, it's, it's in what's known as the present, or, yeah, the present perfect verb tense which is used to describe an event or an action that has happened in the past, but still is continuing in the present. See, in other words, this is God's reminding the people of Israel that there was a specific time when he decided to love them. And even now in the present, his love for them remains perfectly the same. This is what Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 is getting at when we read, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So here God is uh, initiating a conversation with his wayward people by reminding them of his steadfast love for them. And as we pick back up in verse 2, we see how they respond. But you say, how have you loved us? So obviously, not a good response coming from the Israelites here. But before we begin judging these people too severely, I want us to pause and try to see our own hearts in their question. Because guys, I can promise you that it's there. And as we see, other than time and location, not much has changed in the heart of man. Which means every single one of us, though maybe we would never actually say it out loud, we have the exact same ability to look at the world around us and doubt God's love for us just like they did. 
So how do we God or how do we doubt God's love? Well, I'm convinced we end up doing it in one of two ways, either through our circumstances or through comparison. So starting with the first one, oftentimes we can doubt God's love for us by allowing our current circumstances to affirm the lies that we believe about God. So here you have the same people of God who not long ago, who were once rejoicing over all that God had done for them by rescuing them from captivity, bringing them back to their homeland, stirring in their hearts to rebuild the walls and reconstruct their temple and ultimately restore their city. But now they find themselves questioning if God has ever even loved them at all. And see, what makes this even worse is the prophets had foretold of a new era that would be marked with immense blessing following their return from captivity. But when they looked around, all they would see is political oppression, spiritual weakness, economic poverty, famine instead of abundance, suffering instead of success, and much more burden than blessing. And not only did they hear the stories of God's love for them in the past, they were also promised expressions of God's love in the future. But as they looked around at their current circumstances, they began to assume that God's love for them must have run out or moved on. And maybe this is how you're feeling right now too. You know in your mind that God's love you because you know Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, which reminds you of the time when you're dead in your trespasses and sin, but God in his rich mercy because of the great love with which he loved you made you alive in Christ. But if you're honest, as you look around at your current circumstances, just like the Israelites, your heart is doubting God's love for you today. And as a, as a result, you find yourself believing lies and might even question in your heart, man, if God really did love me, then why would I be suffering like this? I thought the Christian life was supposed to be a life of blessing and abundance, not a life of burden and hardship. If God really loved me, why am I still struggling with this specific sin? I thought I would be delivered from this by now. Instead, it seems as though he's given up on me because there's no way he could still love me in the midst of all of this. Well, if this is you this morning, then listen to how he responds to your doubt of his love. He says this, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. For those who doubt God's love for them because of their current circumstances, God in his infinite grace reminds us that his love for you is not dependent upon anything you have done or anything you will eventually do, whether good or bad. Rather, as he reminds us through the story of Jacob and Esau, his love for you is one of unconditional election, which simply means that God loves who he loves, not based upon anything or any condition about you, but solely based upon himself and his own desire to love you. And Paul reminds us of this reality in Ephesians 1, 4-6, which says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. But see, circumstances aren't the only reason why we can find ourselves doubting God's love. The second way we can doubt God's love for us is through comparison. Though their city had been rebuilt with new walls and a new temple, the truth is the second temple wasn't as good or as immaculate as the first one that King Solomon had made. 
Not only was it smaller in size, it also wasn't built with the same amount of materials, and as a result, it became more of a reminder of the good old days of what was compared to the frustration and the humbling reality of what is. But if that wasn't enough to make them doubt God's love, it would have only increased as they compared themselves to the surrounding nations, specifically to the Edomites, who seemed to be growing and prospering. And you can imagine them questioning to themselves, if God loves Jacob or Israel and hates Esau and Edom, then why would he allow us to suffer the the total devastation of our country by King Nebuchadnezzar. And not only that, but then have to suffer even further by remaining in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And if that wasn't bad enough, then to find out that throughout the time that we were gone, Edom remained intact and seemed only to benefit from our loss. How is that loving to us? Although it seems as though they may have a legit accusation against God here, listen to God's answer here in verse four. He says, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Guys, this is God saying, I made a promise And though it doesn't look like it right now, I will prove it to you. And one day you will see this with your very own eyes. See, the problem with comparison is that it only takes into account the things that have happened in the past or are currently seen in the present, but doesn't take into account the entire picture of all that God is doing and will accomplish in the future. However, as we see in verses 6 through 12, because they doubted God's love, their wayward hearts led them to worthless worship. Point two, how we despise God's name. Now here we see the second interaction that God has with his people, where God, through the prophet Malachi, turns the table on them by showing that it's not God's love for Israel that should be questioned here, but rather Israel's love for him as they were actively despising God's name. And maybe the idea of despising someone's name doesn't sound like a big deal to you, but apparently it is to God. Because four times throughout the entire chapter of just 14 verses, we are reminded of this refrain that the Lord's name will be great or feared among the nations. So the question is, how do we despise God's name? Well, picking up in verse six, we read, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Answer, Verse 7, by, pollu- by offering polluted food upon my altar. Well, like I mentioned earlier, from our road trip analogy in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, words like offering and sacrifice don't make much sense apart from understanding the sacrificial system established by God in the Old Testament. And we see this idea start all the way back in Genesis 3 when God sacrificed an animal to cover with fur the man and woman who realized they were naked due to sin. And then in Exodus, we observe the first Passover in Egypt as the Israelites put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house so that the angel of death would pass over them. And then from here, God lays out the specific instructions for the sacrificial offerings in the book of Leviticus, which shows us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And then in Deuteronomy, God again reminds his people of the specific details for sacrifices offered to him. And in Deuteronomy 15, we read, 
All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat it and your household before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it, ha- if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Now, author and Bible teacher Nancy Guthrie says this about the sacrificial system. The word sacrifice in the Bible is the bloody reality of a bellowing animal being butchered on an altar. Imagine the sensory overload of this experience, the violent resistance of the animal, the spurting of blood, the feel of pulling the animal apart, the smell of its burning flesh and bones. Imagine the emotional and spiritual impact of offering the sacrifice knowing that it was your sin that made this death necessary. And imagine the frustration in knowing that you'll be back tomorrow or next week because you will sin again. Now, as we see in verse 8 through 9, God's people were no longer taking the commands of God serious as they in sin began offering blind, lame, and sick animals on his altar. So we see here that there is a direct connection between our acts of worship and service and the reputation of God's name. See, when Israel obeys his commands and follows his instructions, God's name is then honored. And as a result, the other nations fear him and see him as great. But when they disobey him and and do what they want, God's name is then disgraced. And as a result, he just looks like another deity or a lowercase g God of the nations. And how does God respond to this type of worthless worship? Verse 10 says, Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Guys, did you hear that? God said, if you are just going to keep bringing me your junk and the animals that you don't even want to keep for yourself, then I'd rather you just not bring anything at all. Oh, that you would just shut the doors to my altar and stop coming. I'm not just some bloodthirsty God that needs the blood of animals to survive. And I'm not some machine that needs someone to continually put a coin in so that I can operate. I am the holy God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things who wants to have a relationship with you. But because I am holy and you are sinful, I cannot be near you unless you sacrifice a perfect, spotless, blemish-free animal in your place for your sin. That is what I require. And if you're not going to obey that because of your wayward hearts, then I'd rather just have you not come at all. Now, before you give yourself a pass and take yourself off the hook, because we're no longer required to keep the sacrificial system, let me just ask you a simple question. When it comes to Christianity and spiritual things, why do you do the things that you do? What's the motivation of your heart behind the things you do and the places that you go? Now, you don't need to answer it out loud, but but I do want you to truly think about this because if your answer is anything other than a love for God and the praise of his name, then his words in verse 10 are his words for you. God does not need your daily Bible reading your regular church attendance, or your yearly mission trip in order to somehow satisfy or appease him. Nor does he want you to continue to do those things if your heart wants nothing to do with him. He doesn't want your regular acts of service. He wants the real and sincere you. And unfortunately, I think that this is the reality of thousands of people sitting in churches all across America this morning. 
I've heard it once said that from another pastor that they believe that the reason why so many Christians pick the church that they attend has far more to do with what they would rather be doing than what God is actually asking of them. So imagine with me, they they say, I'd rather be at a concert. So so if I have to go to church, then I'm going to pick the one that looks most like a concert. I'd rather be listening to an interesting TED Talk and not a sermon. So why not go to the church that offers the, the good TED Talk? I'd rather have my kids be at Disneyland. So if I have to go to church, then we better go to the church that has the most Disneyland-like kids ministry. This pastor then goes on to conclude that oftentimes we pick the church that has things we'd rather be doing. Because when we're going, we're not actually going for Jesus. We're really just going for us. And we're going so that we can check off the box because we think that we have to and not because we actually want to. But as we see, God doesn't need your works or your acts of service. He wants a pure offering that comes from a heart that actually wants him and wants more of him. And now we come to our final point, point three, how God displays his commitment to us. So picking up in verse 13, we read the third dispute between God and Israel. It says this, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Upon hearing God's response to their sin and his requirement for their sacrifices, they respond in weariness as they see his commands and are faced with the fact that because of their sin, they will have to continue giving the best of their flock to the Lord for as long as they live, because for as long as they live, they'll never cease from sinning. But here's the good news. Though the book of Malachi will be the last word spoken by God to the people of Israel for the next 400 years, God's silence isn't evidence of his cursing, but rather it's the stage he set to display his commitment. Where, where then the silence of God would be broken by the lips of John the Baptist, who sees Jesus walking towards him in John one twenty nine and proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So question, how does God display his commitment to us? By sending his son to the cross to sacrificially die on our behalf. And it's here on the cross where we see two things take place. First, we see that the cross satisfies the requirements of God's law for you, as Jesus is the perfect, sinless, blemish-free male of God's flock, not selfishly kept for God himself, but freely given in sacrifice for the sake of you and me. And unlike the priests who stand daily in the temple offering sacrifices, which can never take away sins, Hebrews 10 says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified so the cross satisfies the requirements of god's law for you and second we see that the cross shouts the refrain of god's love to you As Jesus, God in the flesh, came to earth by putting on skin and walking among us and willingly hung in our place, taking all of our sin upon himself and exchanging it with his perfect righteousness. And though we don't deserve it, Romans 5, 6 through 8 tells us that for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And because of the cross, we no longer have to wonder if God loves us or have to tirelessly offer sacrifice to cleanse us. God, in his never-ending, unconditional, electing love, has displayed his commitment to his corrupt people by sending his son to die in our place so that we would no longer need to doubt his love or despise his name, but rather, in the end, he will declare, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now we come to the table. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.